rest of us will be in Leviticus chapter 16 this morning. Pastor Pat is at the South Campus this morning, and my name is Eric Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here at OBC, and we are typically down at the South Campus, and we like to try to keep people guessing, so we switch up on occasion. Um, so he's down there preaching some of the um, things that you've been learning in Romans 8 with regard to God's providence, and we get to come up here, and I get to dip into Leviticus and some of the things that we have been learning as we studied in Leviticus. I just wanted to remind you what the bulletin does say, that there's evening church tonight, and Pastor Pat has tried to, since he can't be here, to say, I would love you to come back as we study and learn about sex and intimacy and marriage and singleness and how that all plays. He tried to entice you with a sermon title that would make you want to come back. Um, he is burdened, I know, in talking to him as a pastor to preach this sermon and to help uh, with regard to this topic, which is very familiar, whether you're single or married divorced, whatever the situation ha is in your life, um, to equip you with God's Word. So make it a point to come back tonight um, and be encouraged in the Word. I wanted to go ahead and open up in prayer, and we will begin our study in Leviticus 16. So join me in prayer, if you would, as we ask for God's help. Our Father, we do thank you this morning, this hour, that we have the freedom the ability to meet here in this place that you've provided, that we can be encouraged from your word. We can even sing songs that exalt Christ and that we can find our hearts stirred with his greatness. We know that you use your word with your Holy Spirit to draw people's minds and hearts to Christ. So our prayer this hour is simply that you would be pleased to use your word in such a way with your spirit to cause us to be more impressed with Jesus Christ. We know that you are the God and Father who ripped open heaven and spoke that this is your beloved Son with whom you are well pleased. So we pray that you would do that this morning to us through your word to cause us to see something of the beauty and the greatness in the glory of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. There was a time before coming on as a pastor full-time where I worked in various locations and seemed to, looking back now, I seem to see a common thread of working with either people or materials that related to analysis. So spending considerable time looking at reports, looking at trends, looking at data, trying to figure out how things work together. And if any of you have worked in that type of environment, you know that usually the people that manage or lead those departments are unique individuals who are very good themselves at finding little details and being able to extract um, minute things that suddenly make a big picture, big point, and are able to help you greatly. I had one such boss years ago, and I've never met a person like this in my life, nor do I think I ever will. Uh, the way he was able to look at a report and find out all the things behind it and connected to it that brought such um, a bigger picture to our minds and to our, uh, to our desks as we were trying to do our job. One particular day I asked that individual, I said, I am amazed at the detail that you give these reports for our insurance company. But I am amazed at the same time that you have not applied the same detail and analysis to the Bible. 
you, you're flippant with it. You disregard it. You pay no attention to it. Indeed, it's full of all kinds of things that will bedazzle your mind and your eyes forever in Christ. And, you know, he, we talked a little bit after that, but not much. I bring that up as an illustration to segue into Leviticus 16 to say, you don't have to be one of those guys, the analyst guys, to be, do that as a job or do that as a hobby or, or be that whatever it is, to be, have the calling to be an analyst, to spend time with the data as it is in Leviticus 16 or in the Bible. There's so much here. And friends, too many of us look at our Old Testaments like this. We don't spend time looking at it, spend time contemplating, spend time figuring out how it fits together. Christianity is not a collection of stories, but one story. The story of God rescuing sinners to His own glory, praise, and joy. Loving sinners. And when you read the New Testament, you see Jesus pick that up in Luke 24, where He instructed His disciples and caused their hearts to burn within them as He showed them everything in the Law and the Prophets that pointed to Himself, concerning Himself. So our task this morning is simply to look at Leviticus, particularly Leviticus 16, and pray that God would cause our hearts to burn within us as we study His Word and look at the details which ultimately point to Jesus Christ. Leviticus is a book that may be intimidating to you, but hopefully today, after today we'll have a good start looking at it and make some more sense Till you can see some of the relevance and application to you as a Christian. It's been called the centerpiece of the Old Covenant. And if this is the centerpiece of the Old Covenant, then Leviticus 16 is the centerpiece of Leviticus. It finds itself towering above the rest of the book, in both its anticipation and its reflection. And throughout the whole Bible, and indeed even the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, uses Leviticus 16 as kind of the canvas by which he paints the mural of Christ's atonement over the top of. It's so important, so critical, so valuable for us, and so enriching and refreshing even when we study it. So hopefully God would bless us today in that study. If you're going to jump into Leviticus, you should understand one principal thing. It's that the whole book is about God's holiness. God is a holy God, therefore you must be holy if you're going to follow Him. Or rather, whether or not, if you're going to follow him or not, you must be holy because you're going to have to deal with this holy God. In First Peter chapter 1, Peter picks up on this main theme and quotes Leviticus 19. So how are we, sinful people, or our, our great-grandparents in the covenant community, if you will, how are they going to dwell with this God? Because after all, He has just rescued them out of Egypt, and He's give, promised to give them the promised land, but in the meantime, they are in the wilderness and they're navigating their way, which as we read the Old Testament history took a bit longer than they originally anticipated, but they're navigating their way. But at the end of the book of Exodus, the great book of bringing them out, God shows up in a visible way in the midst of the camp when they have the tabernacle built in great glory and all of the people fall on their face and they worship. Because when God shows up in all of His glory and holiness, the people realize their sinfulness and they are on their face. So the issue in Leviticus is, how can sinful people and a holy God coexist? And the answer is you need a mediator. 
You need someone to go in your place, someone to stand before the sinful people and before a holy God and to bring the prescribed sacrifice, the substitute, the blood to take the place of the sins so that it might atone or cover their sins. There's no other way a sinful people can stand or exist in the presence of a holy God without perfect obedience to what He has said. And therefore, you have the book of Leviticus, which is unfolding of the law of God, of how these priests, these mediators, would, would take care of the sacrifices and the offerings and the blood so that holy people could dwell with a holy, uh, sinful people can dwell with a holy God. So just remember that before, before we even jump in here. How can sinful people be in the presence of a holy God? That's the issue that it answers. And in contrast to the earlier offerings in chapters 1 through 7 that outline these various offerings of, that would be offered spontaneously, daily, to deal with daily sin and different issues, Leviticus 16 is a mandatory offering for all of the people of Israel to deal with their sins once per year. So the big point this morning that you need to understand that, that is not just a Levitical issue, but it's a Hebrews issue. It's a New Testament issue. It's for believers of all time. So we could say this morning, your access, my access to God, our access to God is dependent upon the obedience of a substitute. If you don't have an obedient substitute to bring your case to God, to bring your cause to God, you cannot stand in His presence. That's what Leviticus wants us to understand. This is because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So we'll look at Leviticus 16, and we'll look at three humbling conclusions about our access to this holy God. How are we going to get in his, enjoy His blessing? How are we going to enjoy His favor? How are we going to, to dwell in the midst of this dangerous but beautiful God? How does it happen? And Leviticus 16 gives us three conclusions to show us that. First, your access to God is on His terms. That would make sense. After all, we're talking about God. He makes the rules, right? Our access to God is on His terms. This is found in verses 1 through 5. And right away, we need to remember that when we talk about access to God, we're talking about what He has prescribed. This is so obvious, I almost, I almost feel bad mentioning it, but it's so often overlooked, and it's right there in the passage. We've got to highlight it. Look at verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses. Now, what happened in verse chapters 11 through 15 is a bunch of law for dealing with clean and unclean and how someone is to be made clean and made unclean and all these things. So just resetting, this is God speaking to Moses. That is, it originates from God. There's no speculation in the community. Moses and Aaron aren't thinking this up, theorizing how we might come to God. God's Word is revealed transcendently down and external to the people. God speaks to them. Very important for us to understand. And when he does speak, he hearkens back to what probably happened chronologically right prior to this, which is chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu. He doesn't even mention them by name. In fact, they're the unmentionable late priests. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Okay, this whole chapter is about drawing near to God. And right away out of the gate, he says, God's in charge. And oh, by the way, remember those unmentionable two sons of Aaron. Well, what was their chief issue? Why did they get roasted, literally? Well, they offered up strange fire, as it says in Leviticus chapter 10. 
And when they offered up that strange fire, God let holy fire come out of heaven and consume them instantly. So much so he said, carry them out and bury them outside the camp. And then when Aaron was no doubt troubled because two of his four sons are laying there dead on the first day on the job as priests, Moses says, I will be regarded as holy by those who draw near to me. So flippancy with regard to God's holiness is not tolerated to the point that you see him killing people. Two narratives in the book of Leviticus, chapters 8 and 9 and 10, with this Nadab and Abihu situation, and chapter 23. Both instances, God kills people. Very interesting. A book about God's holiness. Two stories, both of them, God's taking people out for disregarding His holiness. Now, that troubles you as a believer. Your issue is with God. And maybe we don't regard God's holiness like we should. He's infinitely holiness. Therefore, one assault upon His armor of holiness is an infinite assault, whether in mind or deed. And it requires infinite justice. That's why James says you break one law, you're guilty of what? All. It's like your windshield. You don't just get one repair on a windshield. If a rock from a snowplow comes up and hits it, you replace the whole thing. You break God's law, you've broken it all. Well, now Aaron no doubt remembers this because he's got two empty chairs at his dinner table. He knows his two sons died. But he's reminding all of us and all the other Jews that would read this, if you are flippant with regard to holiness, you will not stand. And now he's going to give restrictions on this access. Again, it's God who originates these instructions. It's God who's giving the instruction. Now he's going to delineate how and who may come into his presence. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Now we should probably say what this exactly is. This is the tabernacle, tabernacle setting here. It's to communicate a, a heavenly reality, transcendence coming down to dwell with the people. Again, this is the issue here that we're dealing with. How can God be in the presence of people? So they built this tabernacle that God has prescribed with intricate detail of how God's going to dwell with His people. And on the outside of the, the first place called the holy place is the place where the priests may go in daily. And on the left-hand side, as they would go in, there would be the golden lampstand that would communicate God's holiness and His goodness to His people and revealing the way even into the holy place. And then on their right-hand side would be the showbread, reminding them of the faithfulness of God and providing even to His people in the faithfulness of His covenant. And then right in front of them, there would have been the altar of incense that they would have had the light to let a fragrant aroma to God. They would go in there and they would offer the blood, offer the sacrifices, trim the wick, deal with the bread. They're doing all of this stuff on a daily basis as the priests. But then there's a veil. And beyond that veil is what's called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And here God says, nobody goes in there. Well, what's in there? It's the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. There were the angels, the cherubim over the top of it in gold, and then the flat covering over the Ark of the Covenant. There, the mercy seat. And inside would have been the commandments and Aaron's rod. And he says, nobody, nobody goes in that place. That would be, that's the place where God is in His very presence. You can't go in there, is what he's saying. Nobody goes in. So see God restricting His access. No one goes in there. What's the point? Because He's holy. Hebrews 9 goes into all kinds of details showing us what is in that room and what it looks like. But notice what he says at the end of verse 2. 
Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil that is inside the most holy place, going in before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Nobody comes in lest they die. Well, why? For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. That's to say, my presence will be in there. And if you just walk in there, you're going to die. You don't just casually walk up to the God of Israel. You cannot. will be consumed. So he says you cannot go in there. This is not the seeker-sensitive God, right? This is the uninviting presence of God. You draw near. All the people draw near, but you're going to draw near on the basis of a priest. Look at verses 3 through 5. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Okay, so there is a way to come in, and God's very specific here. It's only Aaron that can enter into the most holy place. Very specific that there's going to be a representative, one man, to represent all the people, to bring the people to God. They're going to be outside of the place, but only one man, a mediator, Aaron, as as verses 30 through 34 show us, he's the high priest. So only the high priest can go into the most holy place one time per year. And he does this for the people. So you see how God's beginning to, to unpack how he's going to deal with his people. Not anybody can go in there. Only one guy. One man. He's the representative. And he will come into the holy place one day per year. And then he's going to unpack what he's going to be doing. But just remember, one person. And this one person must be obedient. In, in, in order for the people to enjoy God's blessing, this one man must come in. It's only Aaron. It's only Aaron throughout this whole chapter. And he says in verse 3, But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for an offer, a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Well, he's not to come empty-handed, is he? He's to come with sacrifices, with animal sacrifices. He's going to come and he's going to bring the blood into the holy place. So notice that this priest is not something, someone who is intricately special as a priest. He needs to bring blood if he's coming into the most holy place if he's representing the people. Furthermore, he is, he is to actually be bathed in a particular way. Look at, uh, I'm sorry, he's, let's look at his, his clothing first in verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are his holy garments. These are the holy garments. Now, if you read Exodus 25 and following, you see that the priests are a robe in dazzling clothes, blue and yellow, fine linen, and they communicate the glory and the holiness of the priesthood. These priests are different, just not casual Joe walking into the most holy place. They are wearing holiness outwardly to demonstrate that they have been set apart from God. Different on the Day of Atonement. They wore all white, these holy garments. It's a day of humiliation, a day of sobriety a day of mourning, a day of seriousness over sin. The only color that they would have will be the blood that might spill on their garments. Their leg might be dipped in blood, to borrow from Revelation. They're particularly dressed as they go in, bringing this offering. And furthermore, they must take a bath. He shall, at the end of verse 4, he shall bathe his body in the water and then put them on. So get all the clothes laid out, laid out these humiliation clothes, these all white that don't scream your goodness, but scream that you need to be holy and somber. Lay them out and dunk yourself in the laver. You need a holy bath. So not just your clothing, Aaron. We need you completely immersed in water. You need to be cleansed. 
And then he shall put the clothes on, and then verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the people two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Again, he's coming with blood. This is how the representative for the people of God comes to God. To secure safe access to God, you come with holiness and blood. You must obey God and bring blood into His presence. This really is a universal and eternal axiom. All who approach God must do so with acceptable blood substitute or else God's wrath will break out. That's the story of the Bible. If you're going to draw near to God, you better have acceptable sacrifice or else judgment. So he brings the blood. And we'll see more of this in a minute. So if we were to summarize the first point, the first point is all about your access to God is on his terms. God communicates it. He speaks to a specific man, one representative to represent all the people. And what's he going to do? This one person comes in. He brings an offering for himself. He brings an offering for the people. He has special clothes. He takes a special bath. He, he comes in with the blood and he comes on a special day. All of this to communicate. God is holy. Man is sinful, including the priest. And he must obey a holy God in order to come into his presence. Is that much clear? This is easy going so far. Now we go into point two. Your access to God first is on his terms. Now it's dependent upon a priest. If you're a former Roman Catholic, you might say, yeah, that might get against your grain a little bit. But your access to God is dependent upon a priest. In the Old Covenant, they had these priests. In the New Covenant, we have a priest. We'll talk more about that as we go. To say there's a lot of pressure on this priest in verses 11 through 28 is an understatement. But he is all by himself. Where's everybody else out? Get out. They can't be in the room. They can't be in the section. What about the other priests? They themselves are outside. It's one priest, Aaron. He's the man. Again, he's the representative. He's the mediator. He's the one to go into God's presence with the blood. He's the only one that's been bathed, re-wardrobed. The people are outside. And now look at verses 11 through 14. What verses 6 through 10 essentially are, are summary of the whole chapter. And we'll dip, dip back into that as we go. But verses 11 through 14, the priest brings atonement, get this, for himself. Look at verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Now I emphasize it. I read it with emphasis sake, but you see three times in just a matter of a sentence. For himself, for himself, for himself. Aaron and all the other priests are sinners. They need a substitute to stand and bring the blood even on their own behalf. They're sinners. That's what God wants us to understand. And then furthermore, it says in verse it's 12 through 13. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. That Most people would believe that would be the burnt offering that continues to burn. So he grabs the coals, puts it on his plate, the censer, and he's going to bring that in. And he has his blood in the basin, and he has the coals, and he's going to come and bring that into the most holy place. And it says that he takes two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small. So that's the finest, the highest quality. Puts it on there, and it's going to burn there with those already lit embers from the um, the burnt offering. And it says that he puts the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So now he's walking into the most holy place. Unfamiliar territory for him. First time going in for Aaron, but eerie. 
The only light that he has is the lampstand next to him that God has lit. And he's walking into this most holy place, careful, scared, no doubt. This morning coming in, the light apparently is blown out in the offices as you walk into the office and then back towards where the pastor's studies are. And I open the door and it's all black. And I, and I immediately thought of going into the most holy place, not because the offices are any particularly um, special places, but just thought because it's on my mind going in there. But I was fine. You know, I'm talking to myself, saying, this is familiar, Eric. You don't have to get nervous. You know, you just walk in. There's Chris's office. There's your office, Rob's, the bathroom, Pat's office back there. No problem, right? Could you imagine walking into the place, the holy place, and you're probably sitting there, you're walking and you're thinking, and no doubt thinking of God's holiness breaking out on your son that you used to bounce on your knee, then you had to carry outside the camp because they didn't regard God's holiness. Now you're walking in there with a rope tied around your leg in case you die and they drag you out. You're scared. You hear nothing. The only thing you hear is your heart beating 100 miles an hour and blood swashing around in the, in the little pan and the incense crackling as it's burning. And you're walking in. You think you, God's got your attention? He's draped in this white clothing, the incense popping, the blood spilling, and he walks in. And notice what it says. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he doesn't die. This is amazing. The smoke would then come off the incense and it's going to block his eyes. And if you sat at a campfire very long, you know you kind of do this number when the smoke's in your eyes. So what's he doing? He's turning away. He's got his attention. And it's going up before the mercy seat. So there's a cloud of smoke in this probably poorly ventilated room so that he doesn't behold the mercy seat, God's presence. It says right in the passage that he does not die. So the dangerous duty of drawing near to the presence of God, smoke all over the place so he doesn't look and and he's not in the presence of God directly. There's still that covering. And he goes in there. Amazing. The drama of, of sinful people coming into the presence of God. And this is the best Israel has, their priest. All of this to communicate, in order to draw near to God's presence, you need perfect obedience, and you must bring a sacrifice. This Ark of the Covenant right there, when they would have came came in, it would have two poles that go through the front and the back, and then it would be made out of gold. And as I mentioned, the angels are, are made out of gold, leaning over the top, and they would have covered their eyes and leaned forward. You can think Isaiah 6 about covering their eyes and looking upon it. And the Ark wouldn't have been touched by human hands. You can even think of 1 Samuel, where one of the men reached out to try to touch the Ark as it was being moved, and what happened? He died. And the mercy seat is actually a cover of of gold over the Ark of the Covenant. The golden slab fitted perfectly over it. And the cherubim would have been hammered out of that same gold, wings outstretched over the mercy seat, and their faces looking downward to communicate reverence. And here is Aaron coming into this most holy place. And he's going to present the bull, the blood of the bull, on the mercy seat. He sprinkles it on the front of the mercy seat. It says in the passage, verse 14, that he should do it seven times with his finger. So he's sloshing, counting carefully, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, putting it all around the mercy seat, the presence of God, probably hands shaking, praying all the while he's doing it. But you just see the drama as he's in this, the day of atonement or the day as the Jews would have called it. And he does it. He applies the blood. The incense is burned and he carefully walks out, probably not turning his back, carefully goes back out and out. But he's not done because he's just dealt with his sin. 
Now he's got the million Israelites outside waiting. And they're praying for him, hoping he succeeds. He's our guy. He's our mediator. He's our priest. And now we deal with the people. Verses 15 through 22. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he has two goats, and we're kind of jumping ahead of himself what he did. He does the exact same thing. Takes the blood, takes the coal, goes in, applies the blood on the mercy seat. But we should back up a little bit to notice verse 5. He shall take from the congregation of the people two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. It says in verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself in his house. Verse 7, this is where we get to the two goats. And this is really important super important for understanding the gospel, understanding the aspects of the atonement here. Look at verse 7. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Again, he's by himself and he's got the two goats at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That is outside not only the holy place, the most holy place, but the holy place. He's outside of that. And he takes the two of them and he sets them before the Lord. And then verse 8, Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And what does that mean? That has a, a multitude of meanings uh, in terms of being taken away, taken out to the rocky area, removed far away. All of those variations communicate that something is going to be taken away from its current spot. And it says in verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and used as a sin offering. But at the goat, on verse 10, on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness before the Lord. So we have two goats. One is going to the wilderness. One is going to die and is going to go into the most holy place, his blood. Now this is where we really have to engage. Now the first service, they had the excuse of, you know, driving in the snow and probably not getting enough coffee. Everybody here, this is the time when you've got you to belly up and be analytical. Because this, this is important stuff. If we miss this, we really don't understand what's going on here. There are two things at work, two different goats and two different theological explanations. The first one is what's called propitiation. And that's the goat that's going to die. His blood is being brought to God. That deals with God's wrath. And then you have expiation. That goat is going to run away. And that deals with our guilt. Now, what, is, what does all this mean? Propitiation, expiation. God's given a law. He's been clear. This is who He is. The law reflects His character. And since God Himself is the greatest good, He deserves and demands the greatest honor. He demands obedience. You understand this. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. So God is good and just and right in addition to being holy and righteous when He judges sin. That's the right thing for Him to do because He's God when we sin against Him. So the slightest disregard of God's law by commission or omission renders us guilty and deserving judgment. Sin, at the end of the day, is an attack on God's infinitely lovely and perfect character. Every single sin, no matter how big or small you think it is, Every single sin renders us standing on the one hand down barrel of God's wrath, looking down the barrel of His wrath. That is His justified anger. So we have wrath to deal with 
And then we have guilt. That is, we incur guilt from breaking His law. So He's angry because we've sinned, and we have guilt to deal with. And we have these two goats that deal with both our guilt and His wrath. That's what's being communicated here on the Day of Atonement. And the whole point here is how can sinners be in the presence of God when they're guilty and God's angry? And that's what this passage answers. It shows us that. So we'll deal first with the first goat that deals with propitiation. Another way you might think of the word propitiation is to make propitious. You know, that doesn't help. Well, that, make him favorable, to make God favorable. He's angry. He's wrathful, which is right and good because we've broken his law. So how do you take an angry God and make him propitious or make him favorable? And it's here we learn it's via blood. So look at verse 15. And he, this is for the people. He, Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. See, substitutionary atonement right in the passage. For the people. And what should he do? He should kill the goat and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he's bringing the blood into the, into the holy place. This is what God has prescribed so that sinners can draw near to God in light of his wrath. This blood will propitiate God's wrath. That's what the communication is here of this first goat. He dies, his blood, the priest brings it, and propitiates or satisfies God's wrath. Verse 16, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Again, emphasizing the sins of the people. Now he's not just dealing with the mercy seat. He's cleansing everything. Aaron's going crazy with the blood now. He's splattering it everywhere because the tabernacle needs to be cleansed because it dwells amongst sinners. He's cleansing that. He cleansed the altar of burnt offering. He cleanses the holy place. He's cleansed the mercy seat. Now, he himself is cleansed as a man who's been dunked. He's wearing the different clothes. Now it seems like he's just gone around and cleansed everything. A big sprinkler of blood to clean everything in God's sight. Again, dealing with sin and God's holiness. But remember, the goat had to die and he had to bring the blood. And again, the seven times, again, it communicates completeness, completeness. And now we get to the second goat. So we dealt with his anger, his wrath. This is what God has ordained for dealing with his wrath. Does this make sense? Now we have to deal with the guilt. You break the law, you have guilt. You're guilty before God. You've taken care of his anger, but now you have to have something judicially about your guilt. And notice God doesn't say, hey, we need to do a day of good deeds. We need to help out the Canaanites, clean some villages, get politically active, be moral. He doesn't say any of that. He says, get a goat and kill it. And get another goat and throw it in the wilderness. We're going to deal with sin. And that's exactly what he does. This is commonly referred to as the scapegoat. Someone that is going to carry, or Azazel, carry it away. Take it to the rocky places. Look at verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put, his head, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who's in readiness. 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now you see Aaron. He gets these two goats, and he's going to take, and he's going to grab a hold of the head of the animal, and the only thing he would feel in his hands is the, the, the pulse of this goat. And he's going to identify himself as the mediator or representative of the people. He's taking the iniquity, the sin, the transgressions, as the passage says, and he's imputing or charging or crediting the sin of the people to this goat. He's the representative. He is the mediator. So him putting his hands on the goat is, is the same as every single Jew coming and running and putting their hands on the goat. All the believers are putting their hands on this goat figuratively, if you will, but through the priest, the, the priest Aaron. And he lays a hold of him. And what does he do? He confesses sin. So a good priest, he's probably there for quite a while, grabbing a hold of this goat and confessing iniquity, idolatry, sinfulness that he knows is going on in the life of the people in his own life. But he's charging these sins to the goat. What a picture, huh? Imputing the sin to the goat. And then... Even, even for emphasis sake, verse 21, all their sins. So for the people, putting his hand and putting all of the sins of the people on this goat. So we've dealt with God's wrath and his anger over my sin. We brought the goat, slayed him, brought the blood in the holy place. Now we're dealing with our guilt. And what are we going to do with it? Look what he says. And he should put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who's in readiness. There's a, there's a man ready to go and to drive it into the wilderness to make sure he doesn't come back. So to grab a hold of this goat and take him into the wilderness. And the old tradition goes that the Jew would take him and find a cliff and throw that thing off of the cliff. So his legs would break and he'd die at the bottom of it and he wouldn't come back. Now that's not in the Bible. That's just extra biblical writing. But the point is they don't want the goat to come back. He's bearing the iniquities. Look at verse 22. The goat shall bear the, all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Take this goat as far away from the people. Take him outside the camp. Take him as far away as you can, this, this uh, imputed goat with the sin of the people, and get him out. Let him bear it out there so he doesn't come back. So verses like Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That would be going on in the Jew's mind on the Day of Atonement. Taking our sin, charging it to the goat, and taking it away. Or Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's a big difference between not remembering and forgetting. Forgetting implies a lack of omniscience. Not remembering communicates mercy. He's never going to bring them up again. They've been dealt with. They've been imputed to the goat, and he has carried them away. Micah 7, verse 19, And he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So you see it. The goat carries the, he carries the blood of the goat in, deals with God's wrath on the mercy seat. He takes the, the sin of the people, confesses it for the guilt of the people, and he drives it away. And the people now are smiling. As God has dealt with their sin. And the priest would have to go, and you, you read going on from here, he actually has to change his clothes again, offer more sacrifices for himself, and they've got to burn the clothes, get rid of the clothes. They've got to get the, the guy that ran the goat into the wilderness. He's got to come back. He's got to clean up. 
And anyone, as it says in verse 22, touches anything on which... Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong chapter here. I'm sorry. Verse 26, And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And they offer it. And they burn up everything with fire. Now they're done. The Day of Atonement. And what's really interesting is when you keep reading in Leviticus, in this chapter in particular, it's a day of mourning. He proclaims a fast. Proclaims a Sabbath. Don't work. And it says, afflict yourself in the ESV. That would be fast. And it would take four days to the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, they blow a trumpet and they would celebrate on the fourth day. Except on the year of Jubilee. As soon as he offered that last goat, what would happen? But a trumpet would blast on the year of Jubilee. Slaves would be set free. Sins are forgiven. A joyous, raucous celebration would begin. And oh, how those Israelites would have sat and listened and thought, why can't we have the year of Jubilee every year instead of every 50 years? If we can only have that feeling that our sin has been finally and completely dealt with, we're not slaves anymore, we're free. Because they come to the back to Leviticus 16 and they realize for every other year and really for every year, in addition to mourning, and Sabbathing. Look at verse 34. This shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. You notice that? Once a year. Every, seventh month, every year on the seventh month, on the tenth day, you do this exercise again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. So while verse 30 is very encouraging and it makes you smile, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You should be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Yes, God is good. He's forgiven my sin. I'm atoned for. My guilt is gone. My, your wrath is gone. You're smiling. You're smiling in sackcloth as you're mourning over your sin, but you're smiling. You realize that next year, guess what? We're going to be doing again. We need to get two more goats. And if this priest dies, we need another priest. We need to bring the offering back in. We need to cleanse this tabernacle. We need to offer more sacrifices. We need to cleanse another priest. He needs another bath. He needs a change of clothes. We need to run another goat into the wilderness every year, every year. And so it would go. And they would just every year bring this blood into the most holy place. And you can just imagine, there's no cleaning crews that come into this place. They come and clean up after their feast. But as they just come in and step in the previous year's testimony of God's holiness and their sinfulness, more blood just dried up on the floor. Blood on the mercy seat. Blood all over the curtain. Blood everywhere. And you know at the end, they must be saying, this is good. God is gracious. But can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if we had permanent forgiveness? If we had a priest that didn't die, that was holy, if we had a sacrifice that was sufficient to propitiate God's wrath eternally and remove our guilt forever? Can you imagine? But God being a gracious and a good God makes it that this isn't the end. And you know what He provides in Jesus Christ? He provides a perfect priest. He provides a perfect lamb. Not the Lamb of men, the Lamb of God, as John says, who takes away the sins of the world. A perfect priest, a perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice. I'd ask you to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7 as we close. We'll just look at some passages here. 
you've got to see this pop at the end because what what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying, oh, I'll show you Leviticus. I'll show you Leviticus fulfilled to the point that you are beside yourself with joy. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? How can sinful people have access to God without insulting His glory? Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 23. The former priests, he's contrasting guys like Aaron. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's just to say we need a lot of priests because they keep dying. They're afflicted by the curse too. Verse 24. But he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That is to say, he doesn't die. He's a priest forever. He's a perfect priest that doesn't die and continues forever. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost. If you just were to stop it right there, verse 25. Consequently, consequently, why, writer of Hebrews? Because he lives forever. Because he holds his priesthood forever. Therefore, he is able to save. Oh, this is good. Christ, the high priest, is able. Your Savior is able. Now, you'd be thrilled if you were a Jew in the Old Testament because you had a year reprieve. But could you imagine if someone were to stand on the rooftops and say, He is able to save. Could you imagine? He said, There's one who's coming who's able to save. And you'd say, Save for a year? That would be great. We love that. No, to save, what does it say in verse 25? To the uttermost. That is completely. Those who are able to, he's able to save completely. There's one who's able to save you completely. No need for another sacrifice. Go ahead and flip the calendar every year. It doesn't matter. The only date on the calendar that matters is Golgotha, Calvary. That's the only one that matters. He is able to save completely those who draw near to God through Him. Don't you think he read Leviticus? It's all about drawing near to God. Those who, who are just like the woman with the issue of blood that was grabbing hold of Christ's garments. That's the picture of us. We're like a billion barnacles in the church of Jesus Christ, just attached to Jesus. And He brings us in to the most holy place, right into the presence of God. Even Hebrews 6 says, in the inside of the veil. Oh, this is good. He is able to save you to the uttermost. Those who draw near, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He never dies. And what does He do? He makes intercession. Those priests would, would pray, and they would pray on behalf of the people, and they would plead on the basis of God's promises and doing that. But what does Christ plead? When your conscience accuses you, when Satan accuses you, when other people accuse you, what is the basis of Christ pleading for you? Does He say, oh, have mercy on Eric. He's a poor wretch. Please have mercy on him. That's not how Christ pleads. You know what Christ pleads? Give Eric justice. Give him perfect justice. Satan, bring the charges. Other people bring the charges. His conscience bring the charges. Jesus is pleading His blood and righteousness for me. He's not asking for mercy. He's saying justice. He's saying, I already died. I already brought my blood into the holy place. I satisfied wrath. There's no wrath for Him. 
I've taken his guilt, and I am the one that went out into the wilderness, outside the camp. What are you going to bring? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who? He's gone in the holy place. He is saved to the othermost. He's removed our sin from us. And he pleads his precious blood. When you sit and you think about acceptance before God, if your mind goes to all the stuff you can do, you're not valuing Jesus at all. Your mind should go to all the stuff you can't do. And that guilt should be like a chauffeur that drives you to the cross and you see everything that He did do in your place and that should cause you to worship. Well, the text goes on to say, for it was indeed fitting that we believers should have, verse 26, such a high priest. Oh, tell us what He's like. He's holy. Oh, as compared to Aaron. Aaron had to dress up to, to display holiness. Jesus is holiness intimately. He's intricate holiness. He projects holiness out. All the angels in heaven that are holy are holy because they reflect Jesus. He is holiness. So when he says that it is fitting that we have a holy high priest, he's saying we don't need to dress Jesus up and give him a costume for holiness. He is holy. That's glorious. He's innocent. That is just like the same word that they would use for the sacrifices, innocent and unstained. He's without blemish. He's perfectly clean. So here, the writer of Hebrews is getting at, he's the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He's innocent. He's without blemish. And he's separated from sinners, high, exalted above the heavens. And then verse 27, he has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's able to save. He's sufficient. He lives forever. He never dies. He is the holy, unstained, perfect priest who offered up the sacrifice, who, who brought sinners within the veil. Amazing. He sits down, as Hebrews says, at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 9, as we close here. Again, the point, better God, a better Christ, a better priest. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So much more here, but... It's amazing to think about it. Look at verse 11, chapter 9. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, that through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's getting back to Leviticus 16. It's a better one. It's not one of this creation. It's the one in the heavens. Aaron came one time per year. He offered up a sacrifice. Christ came and he offered up one time. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all. That's once for all time. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. Sound familiar? Not like Leviticus entrance. But this is like Gospel of John entrance. Goats and calves by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secures eternal redemption. We are sinners who attack God's eternal character by breaking His eternal law. And we earn eternal justice. And the eternal Son comes and offers it a perfect eternal sacrifice to give you redemption that's eternal. What more do you need? He says, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
There's better access, there's better forgiveness, there's better hope, there's better joy. You see what happens here? You're full of, of joy and happiness because of what Christ has done. No doubt, even thinking of the scapegoat would have been on Jesus' mind as He was crucified, not in the camp, but outside the camp, treated as a criminal. And He went out there to, as Isaiah says, bear our iniquities. Virtually the same phrase used in Leviticus 16. And Jesus being that great fulfillment of the type of Azazel comes and He escorts, He's escorted out not by one standing by, but even by the Holy Spirit Himself, bearing up under divine displeasure for us. And he doesn't get tossed off a cliff. He doesn't run away. He stands there and he bears God's wrath displayed publicly, as Romans 3 says, as the propitiation for our sins. Same word that's used for mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. And just think about this reality for a minute. Why would he do this? Why come for me? Why come for you? Now, your pride and my pride might think for a minute that I'm not as bad or you're not as bad as the next guy. So therefore, maybe we have something to offer God. But just a five-minute reading of your Bible will show that there's nothing good in us. There's nothing of value to God. In fact, He comes, as He says, to rescue sinners. You can't add to God and give to God. Acts 17 says He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything. So what are we going to give him? We can't add to Jesus' resume, his portfolio. So why does he come and save you? Well, Titus 3 tells us it's because of his goodness. The goodness of God appears. The grace of God appears. He's good and he comes and saves you. He loves you. Not because you're lovely, but because he's loving you might, not want, you might not feel comfortable thinking and talking about the love of God. Maybe we don't emphasize it enough or whatever. Listen, if we're emphasizing the gospel, we've got to emphasize the love of God. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. They will not swallow the barrel of wrath, but they'll have eternal life. He loves you. Why? Because He loves you. And that should cause you to swim in praise. He loves you. There's nothing that you can do to add value to God, so it would be a good time to stop trying to, re- to, to depend upon your own righteous deeds and your own moral deeds, what you do and what you do not do. Cling to Jesus. He loves you and He gave His life for you. We're just lepers that cried out for mercy because of His grace. Well, there's so much more that we could say. But the proper response is worship and praise and thanksgiving. Indeed, the blood of Christ is the divine bath for the soul. What does He do but take our sin like a flaming torch of rebellion and He dunks it into the ocean of His love whereby He extinguishes it. So how dare we, when our consciences besiege us, run to find another scapegoat to carry away our sin, these functional saviors, these temporary things to try to fix us when we need to run to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the scapegoat who alone successfully carries our sin outside the camp. 
And furthermore, Jesus is the only one willing. Jesus is the only one able. He's the only one qualified to march into heaven itself and to apply blood on the mercy seat so that you might be forgiven. So he's dealt with your guilt. He's dealt with your sin. And he says, just come and worship me. Come and delight in me. Come and find him to be infinitely glorious as the Savior. As we lead towards communion, I want to read one section of a a small poem here connected to this. It's kind of archaic in the language, but I think you get the picture. "'Tis sprinkled with the costly blood on which the Father smiles." That blood which from the offer of flowed for all whose sin defiles. Look there and meet your father's eye. Learn there the priestly mystery. The bronze altar smokes no more on which the victim lay where sin's unmeasured doom he bore when you had nothing to pay. Go forth without the camp and see what God's high priest has done for thee. Then look within the inner shrine where now he pleading stands. Not God's high priest alone, but thine. Let's pray. Our great God, we can but thank you and bow before you as the Holy One. We thank you that your son and desire to magnify your law and to display your love in a way that we would never know came and rescued sinners. In so doing, he magnified your justice and your holiness to levels we would have no understanding if Christ had not come and died. Oh, how multifaceted is that glorious cross It's foolishness to the world. But to those whom you have showered grace upon is the power of God for salvation. I pray you make us a church that boasts in the cross. Make us individuals who delight in the cross. Forbid it that we should be a bunch of people that are stuck on ourselves and our accomplishments and eclipse Jesus Christ. Even the young people may not rely on their parents' church attendance or their time at church. They must see clearly, Lord, help them to see that apart from a mediator bringing blood into heaven's holy of holies, there is nowhere to stand. Through your Spirit, I pray that you would arrest hearts with your grace Break hard hearts that see Christ as a religious figure, as someone to be imitated, but one to be kept away. And break them to see His glory and His greatness and His beauty and His worth. He is indeed the only hope in this world and in the life to come. So open eyes to see the glory of Christ. All of us, that we might behold Him. It's wonderful and worthy of our praise. And now as we take communion together, 
May we boast in our minds and in our hearts the great cross whereby you draped Christ upon it and smeared his blood perfectly upon it and made that wooden altar. We pray this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.